It's an amazing thing to me, Lord, that the Apostle Paul thought that it took divine power to be loved, to know ourselves loved. And so I pray for that power. There are many people who can't feel loved. And so we need miracle power rooted and grounded in the love of God to have power to comprehend and experience the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ that is beyond human abilities to conjure up through knowing. We need power. So come and do beyond what I can do here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So yesterday our focus was on glorifying God, period, glorifying God in everything because God glorifies God in everything. And we focused on Exodus 3 and Exodus 14 in particular, where God revealed himself as the God who is, the God who has a name and is personal, the God who is glorious, and the God who is passionate about revealing that glory in the world. And then we saw that the God of the Exodus who is passionate about revealing the glory of his great name is showing up in the Psalms and showing up in the prophets and finally showing up incarnate in Yeshua, Yahweh, saves. And on the night before he accomplished his exodus, he manifested the very same motive that was manifest in the first exodus, namely, Father, what shall I say? Deliver me from this hour? No. For this very purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify yourself, your name, so that every one of you who has been delivered out of the Egypt bondage of your sin and guilt and death and hell owe your deliverance to the allegiance of Jesus to the glory of his Father. That's yesterday. Now, The title I've been assigned this morning is Glorifying God by Being Compelled by God's Love. Now, I could have have complained about these titles and said, I I want to do my own titles, but I, I didn't because I love this title. So this is not hard for me to do. This is, I'm not operating under constraint from the powers of campus outreach. I'm happy to wear this armor. So here's the focus today. How does your experience of being loved give God glory? How is God shown to be glorious by the way you experience being loved by Him? 
Or to be more specific, how does your going about your ministry, planning an event, talking to students, writing notes for a talk you're going to give, fundraising, how does your going about your ministry carried along by being loved make much of God? How is God glorified by your being compelled by being loved by Him? That's the question I think I've been asked to address. Now, one of the reasons I'm happy about this is because there aren't many questions that could be more culturally conflicted and therefore relevant than this one because virtually everyone in this room and every student you will talk to has absorbed by the air we breathe a cultural intuition about what it means to be loved that makes the Christian message almost unintelligible. My experience of preaching the God-centeredness of God or the God-centeredness of the love of God, my experience for many years has been this lands on lots of people not as a strong sense of being loved. Why? I think if you're an average American student, your intuitive, instinctive sense of being loved is that the lover is terminating on you. His affections and focus are terminating on you. That's what it means to be loved. It is felt deeply, culturally, pervasively, humanly, not just America. What else would it mean? <laughs> I'm being loved. It ter it's terminating on me. I'm being loved. I'm the one being loved. How could it not finally be about me? That's why it feels good. That's why being loved feels good. Somebody finally took notice of me, cared for me, valued me. That's what it means. Good grief. What, what other message would you bring me of the love of God? And that sense is so strong and so natural and so obvious to virtually everybody that the thought that there might be a better way to be loved is unintelligible. There might be a better way to be loved. There might be a better experience of being loved. A sweeter, deeper, higher, stronger experience 
of being loved. There might be, is, is beyond comprehension to most people. And my guess is that many of you, leaders though you be, in campus outreach, are yourselves in that category right now. Not that you're unsaved, nor even that you're immature. I'm operating on the assumption that everybody in this room that is with Campus Outreach has had your eyes opened by the Holy Spirit to see the glory of Christ in the gospel. That you've turned from your sin, you've turned from the world, they're not your master and your treasure anymore. Christ is. I'm operating on that assumption. He's your Lord, He's your Savior, He's your treasure. But there are for some of you, perhaps many of you, a lingering sense that some teachings of the Bible aren't native yet. They're jarring. They're not fitting. They don't just click like some others do yet. They're just kind of... And you're, you're not rebelling. You're just saying, it's not fitting yet. And I wish it would just go click. And so, my prayer and my hope as I've prepared this message is that you would, by that miracle I prayed about, see some things, feel some things in a new way that frees you to feel profoundly loved in such a way that the focus, yes, the focus of being loved, is not finally on you. And you would experience, as, experience it as a, a better being loved, not a lesser or worse, but better. If you don't experience God's God-centered love for you as better, you haven't seen it yet. If it feels like a weight and not a burden lifter, you didn't see it. You just missed it. So you got more work to do, which we do till we're dead. So here's the question I'm going to ask. Why does God perform all His acts of love toward us in a way that reveals He's loving us for His glory? Why does God perform all of His acts of love toward us in a way where He manifestly, continually, is drawing attention to the fact that He's loving us for Him. Why, why, why would He do it that way? Because I have just discovered that because of the cultural wiring and the human wiring, many people don't hear that as an increase of being loved.
but as a diminishment, which is a great tragedy. Why does God relentlessly reveal his love for us by telling us over and over he's doing it for his name? And my goal is that by the end, many of you would not feel compromised in being loved, but intensified, heightened, strengthened, deepened, sweetened by that truth. A lot of people say, it just isn't love for me if he's doing it for his glory. It just isn't. They would say, you say he's making much of me, but in fact, it isn't making much of me if he's making much of me that I might make much of him. It just isn't. That's what a lot of people feel. And I'm trying to change that. In fact, I just tremble even to use those words because it isn't true. And I want to show you that it isn't. I want you to feel more loved because God loves you for his name's sake than if he made you the ultimate end of his love. So, I will probably move too quickly through some of these texts for you to look them up, but maybe not. Depends on how, how good you were in your Sunday school sword drills. They probably don't do those anymore. That's 60 years old. I'm going to give you six illustrations of what I mean about God loving you for his namesake to show you what I mean by that and God takes his word and he does the miracle that's what I'm praying for number one the text that was read God shows his love this is Ephesians 1 5 and 6 God shows his love for us by predestining us to adoption for the glory of his adopting grace. I'll read the verse. Ephesians 1.5, in love, mark those words, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of the glory of His grace. In love, He set His favor upon me, called me out, made me His own, unto adoption, to the praise of the glory of that very adopting grace. That's the goal. Now, do you feel less loved? He adopted you. 
He brought you into his family in love, in love unto the praise of that love. It didn't terminate on you. Number two, you were created in love for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. God would not be able to love you if you didn't exist. Therefore, He made you. Therefore, your creation, your, your conception in your mother's womb was an act of sovereign love. He means for you to be in existence in order to experience the fullness of every blessing that will come upon the children of God. And it says He did it for His glory. Number three, God shows His love for us by sending us a Savior. Luke 2, 10 to 14, fear not, behold I bring you good news of great joy, for unto you this day in the city of David has been born a, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God! that the people have been so pursued in love that a Savior, we get the Savior, He gets the praise. We get the good news of great joy and He gets an angelic army of praise. Is that okay? Does that, does that somehow lessen the pursuit of you. Lessen the wonder. I hope not. Number four. God shows His love for us when Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. Amazing. The love of Christ controls us compels us in our title. The love of Christ compels us, controls us, because we have concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore, all have died. And He died for all, that those who are living might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sakes died and was raised. That's amazing. 
The love of Christ holds us, compels us, drives us, sustains us, secures us, makes ministry possible for us. And then he thinks it out. How did he show that love that is so compelling to us? He died for me. And when he died, I died to all that stuff, the world, sin, Satan, hell, I died. My judgment is past. And I came alive. And he did it all. Verse 15, why? That I might live for him. What what does that mean, live for him? He doesn't need your help. So live for him can't mean meet his needs, supply his deficiencies. No, live for him means live to make him look great. And now put the first and the last, first to verse 14, last to verse 15 together. The love of Christ compels us because he died so that we would live for his glory. Am I being loved? Or are you being glorified? I hope you don't talk like that. That's not the way Paul thought. Paul was compelled by a love that terminated on the glory of Christ. And it was a love so great it took a miracle to comprehend, which is what I'm praying for. Number five, God shows His love for us by making us spiritually alive. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us. Now, just pause there. That phrase, great love, doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament. And and that's why it feels to me really great here. The love of God is called great here. Why? What's it doing? God being rich in mercy because of the great love which, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. That's what it's doing together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There's so many things about this text. The intrusion in verse 5 of the phrase, by grace you've been saved, does it, it grammatically alien to that sentence. Theologically, totally at home. Grammatically, it's alien. It has to be stuck in. I mean, read it without it. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive with Christ and raised us up with Him. You don't need to stick that in. It's in the way. It's not in the way. Why is it stuck in? He's going to say it in verse 8. 
By grace, you've been saved. You're going to say it. Why stick it in right here? Right at the point where the great love of God made us alive from the dead. By grace, you've been saved. So that we would get what grace is. You were dead. You're alive. That's grace. You had nothing to do with it. Nothing. Zero. You did not make yourself alive. Corpses don't do that. And that's why he put it in here. So that we'd go back to chapter 1, verse 6, that we read in our very first point, where it says you were adopted unto the praise of the glory of His grace. And now you're seeing that grace operative, not just in the sending of Jesus, but in the making of you alive at a moment in time called regeneration by the great love of God, which means that this great love is aiming at the praise of the glory of the grace of that great love which means the love is no less great for having been done for the glory of grace. When I was singing, those songs were just perfect, by the way. Good night. We should just go home after those songs because if you, if you had known what I was going to say before, like I knew before, you would sing those songs with, Yes! Yes, yes, that's right, that's right, yes. But, but most personally, as we pause to just say our own words, that moment of silence, you know what I was saying? I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. Praise the great love of God for me. I wish I had a half an hour right now to talk about Reformed soteriology. It is so sad, in one sense, that battles in the church have to be fought over this. But listen, when it says you were made alive by great love, that's a love He did not show to those who aren't made alive. Which means he has a greater love for you than for those who go to hell. Which is a whole theology. And, and there's just thousands and thousands of people being taught that God's love isn't that way. There isn't a great love that makes some alive. There isn't. What a tragedy. What, what do you do with this verse? That is, I mean personally. We're not talking about, let's get our exegesis right here. Yes, but I want you to feel loved with a great love that made you alive. It made you alive and not others. And our hearts weep for those we love who haven't yet been made alive by the miracle of the great love that makes us alive. But I don't have that half hour to talk about that, so we'll leave it at a minute and a half. Number six. God shows His love for us in the way Jesus prays for us. John 17, 24. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me before, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus had said in verse 9 of John 17 that he's not praying for the world. None of this particular great love that he has for you, his chosen ones, the ones that the Father has given to the Son. I'm praying for them, these campus outreach disciples of mine, that they might see my glory. That's the ultimate gift of being loved. Being loved, being saved, is ultimately being able to see and savor and show the glory of Jesus supremely. That's the way the saints have always prayed, isn't it? Psalm 79, help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Those are my six illustrations of God's love for you all of them being done for the glory of His name. And I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that God, in telling you those six things, does not want you to feel less loved. I know that, but more loved. So the question is, why? Why does, why does He do it that way? And before I give my concluding answer, there is... Um, another question that needs to be asked that's very closely related. Namely, the question that has arisen over the years in my dealing with this issue of God's God-centeredness, does God make much of us in loving us? Is that a good way to talk? And if God makes much of us in loving us, is it a defect to really enjoy that? Being made much of. And my answer to both those questions is yes, it is. You know, maybe I answer the second one in a different way so that yes would be the wrong answer. So let me just say it this way. Yes, He makes much of you, and yes, it is right to enjoy that. Okay? Those are my two answers. Yes, He does make much of you in loving you, and yes, it is right, good, fitting, to enjoy being made much of by God. Now, I'm going to give you some illustrations of this too before we answer the question, how is this a greater love? And I could pause. In fact, I put them in the notes here so that if you read it online, you can find these verses. Um, I could pause after each one of these and show that he's making much of you for his namesake, like I did with the others. 
But I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to point you to these, these seven illustrations very quickly to answer the question, is part of God's love for you making much of you? And if it is, then certainly you would dishonor his design if you said, I don't like that. But rather, that's wonderful. Thank you. Number one, God makes much of us by being pleased with us and commending our lives. C.S. Lewis' sermon, The Weight of Glory, one of the most important sermons I ever read, in that sermon, the weight of glory is Jesus looking you in the face and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. He says that is a weight of glory that is scarcely imaginable to bear. Here's, here's what he says. To please God, to be a real... Now, let me just pause here. This is another half hour I need on the doctrine of justification and sanctification. We're talking about real, attitudinal, and behavioral traits of your life that God likes, not justification. Justification is when he looks at a sinner, sees the perfection of Jesus, says, I love you in Christ because you're totally perfect in him and you've got to be because I only accept perfection. Once that is done, and he's sanctifying you gradually. He's seeing the fruits of the Holy Spirit and liking what he sees. Okay? But don't have that half hour either. Here's what Lewis says. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in. As an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight, a burden of glory, which our thoughts can hardly sustain, but so it is. That's number one. Number two, God makes much of us by making us his fellow heirs Fellow heirs with his son who owns everything. Fellow heirs with the son who owns the universe and everything in it. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. So don't hasten the day, you're going to get it all. So you don't need prosperity theology. You get it all. It's just a matter of time, very short time in fact. Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be an heir of the world. All of it. 1 Corinthians 3.21, let no one boast in men, all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. You are Christ. Christ is God's. So number two is he makes much of you by making you owner of everything. Oh, to believe that. Then you can lay your life down. You don't need it now. You've, it's on paper written in blood. Yours. Just think how short your life and how long eternity is. 
the whole universe, yours at your disposal for your pleasure, forever. It's just because we don't believe that, that we crave stuff. Number three, God makes much of us by having us sit at table when Christ returns, serving us as though we were the masters and He were the slave. Luke 12, 37. Truly, truly, I say to you, He will dress Himself for service and have you sit at table and He will come and serve you. The most amazing picture of the second coming in the Bible. Number four. God makes much of us by appointing us to carry out the judgment of angels. 1 Corinthians 6.3 Do you not know that we are to judge angels? You think you're little. Well, I'll tell you, angels are big. And you will sit in judgment. Number five. God makes much of us by ascribing value to us and rejoicing over us as His treasured possession. Matthew 10, 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Zephaniah three seventeen, The Lord your God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is almost beyond comprehension that God will sing. You think we're going to sing? We will. We sang. Yahweh, Yahweh. We love to say the name. He's going to sing over us. It's going to go both ways. Number six, God makes much of us by giving us a glorious body like Jesus' resurrection body. Philippians 3.21, He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Or Matthew 13.43, The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. It says in Revelation 1, Jesus shines like the sun. His face shone like the sun. And of here, here in Matthew 13, you, your face will shine like the sun, which means your face will be so bright nobody can look at you unless they have new eyes. That's what it means to have a spiritual body so that we can look at the unlookable. We are not able in our present frame to experience the joys that are destined for us. We must have new joy capacity bodies in order to comprehend, experience the fullness of the wonders that will, we will be to each other. And finally, number seven, most amazingly of all, most incomprehensibly of all, is that we are made much of by God granting us to sit with Christ on His throne, whatever that means. 
But here's the verse. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Or Ephesians 1.22, the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I put those two verses together because my own take on this is that Christ has a body, you, and in his body he will permeate the universe with his immediate governing, ruling presence through you. Words, words, words. But wonders we grope toward. So for those seven reasons, my answer to the question, does God love you by making much of you, is yes. He does. Incomprehensibly, over the top, beyond imagination, God makes much of his bride. Couldn't make it much more clear, I don't think, than is made in text like that. God loves his church. He loves the elect members of his church with a kind of love that makes more of us than we could ever imagine. Now, last decisive question. Why does God, who loves us so much, and who makes so much of us, remind us again and again that he does all of this for his own glory. Why does God remind us over and over that he makes much of us in a way that is designed to make much of him in the end? Are you among the number who, when you hear that he does, goes, oh, I thought it was about me. He doesn't really love me. He doesn't really make much of Are you among that number? God, I pray not. The answer why he does it this way That is why he tells us over and over again that he makes much of us and that he loves us for his glory is that loving us this way is a greater love. Not a lesser love. It's a greater love. This is the message we have for the world. God has a greater love for you than you can presently conceive of. You will have to undergo a regeneration, a new birth, in order to comprehend how God loves you more than you think He should love you. It is a greater love. It's greater by terminating on Himself and His glory than it would be if it terminated on us. If God made us 
to be our final treasure in being loved. He would not be as loving as He is when He makes Himself our final treasure in loving us. Why? Because the self, no matter how glorified, no matter how beautified, no matter how shining like the sun in the kingdom of our Father, self will never be enough for a heart made for God. Never. And therefore, if He bowed to our desire to be loved by being the end of our love, the treasure of our love, He wouldn't love us. He would keep in his pocket what it means to really be loved and just let us have the love we want. And he will not do that. He will love us by making himself our final treasure, not ourself our final treasure. So, campus outreach glory in this, take heart from this, rejoice in this, be strengthened by this, be compelled in your ministry by this. You are loved. I say it on behalf of Christ. You are loved by God. You are precious to God. And He loves you so much that He will not let your preciousness become your God. He will be your God. He will be your treasure. It will be the capstone of your experience of being loved when you find yourself freed from self to focus all attention on Him and find in Him your all in all. This will be the capstone of being loved. The final step of being loved is when you find that your being made much of is a fitting of you to enjoy maximally making much of Him. So, Go about your ministry compelled by this love and God will get great glory. Let's pray. Father, work the miracle, I pray, in me, my family, this wider family of friends and fellow believers. Work the miracle of the experience of being loved for the glory of God. Of glorifying you by being compelled by this God-centered experience of being loved. I ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.